Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your scriptures. To anticipate that your spirit will speak to us through the word. Not only instruct us in a, in a way of living and life that's reflective of your love and character, but even more importantly, will point us to Jesus. Will remind us of the forgiveness of sins and the reality that, of life that we have, that he's brought to us because of his death and because of his resurrection. And so we just continue to pray that as your word presents itself to us today, that you'd speak to us, continue to form and shape us, and encourage us. And we ask it in your son's name. All God's people said, amen. All right. Let me get my stuff open. All right. Well, today we are going to be in the Old Testament. All right. We're going to be actually in the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay. Uh, and perhaps maybe when you heard the band play that uh, little uh, gathering music, you recognized it as what? The, turn, 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 right? The Birds, 1965, the Billboard Hot 100. As they like to say, well, that was our B-side attempt. Uh, anyway, um, because, and I said that only because if you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes, all right, you're going to be familiar with the song, but listen to, the, to, to chapter 3 uh, from the text, all right? Uh, and again, if you're only familiar with the song, it's going to sound even, it's going to sound familiar because this is where the song comes, comes from. All right, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, right? You've heard that before, right? And you probably have recognized it uh, in the music uh, from, um, uh, from that song. I mean, that's basically Ecclesiastes put the music, right? Um, anyway, uh, but that's chapter three. Today, we're concerned actually with portions of chapter 1 and 2, because as familiar as, you, as familiar as you are with chapter 3, I want to show you how we get to this sort of perspective. I want to show you how we get to this outlook on life and why it's important and seeing and recognizing God at work for us as his people, all right? And so maybe think of chapters 1 and 2, especially if you're not familiar with it, um, just as preparatory, right, to three. It's what makes three possible, right? One plus two is? Where are you, man? <laughs> Sorry. All right. So anyway, my goal. Uh, hey, let's start over, right? All right. So chapters one and two, we're going to take a look at um, to get us three. All right. So what happens first? Well, the writer's first reflection in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is on wisdom, right? That think, think about wisdom, right? We're getting ready to go back to school. We're going to take our daughter up to college this week, right? Wisdom. Human wisdom and the pursuit above human wisdom, uh, the pursuit of human wisdom above all other things. Think about that. Because for you and me, as followers of Jesus Christ, this really becomes a first commandment issue, right? Thou shalt have no other gods but me. And yet we see in the world today wisdom or the acquisition of knowledge 
perhaps held up as one of the highest, if not the noblest uh, things. Wisdom is an idol or a god of the age or the ages. Let me read the text for you. The writer says this, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. So the idea is that this is Solomon writing these words, all right? I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. And I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. (laughs) Chasing after the wind. Wow. You can read in the words of the writer, or you can take away that he's depressed, right? There's cynicism. Um, But brothers and sisters, to be honest with you, our human condition and experience in some ways nods its head in agreement because the author is simply reflecting on what we all know to be true by experience or observation What we know to be true is the failure of human attempts to create heaven on earth. The failure of human attempts to reach perfection. The failure of human attempts by itself to exist in a state of bliss, uh, to correct the brokenness of the world around it so that it no longer exists. So whether religion, politics, war, education, human striving, whatever category, Uh, you want to use, we're reminded by the writer uh, that humanity is not the answer to itself. Does that make sense? Humanity is not the answer to the problem of itself. Everything, the writer says, is transitory and therefore of no lasting value. Stuff will not satisfy as the marketing slogans promise us. People are caught in this trap of the absurd and pursue these empty pleasures, the writer says. They build their lives on lies. And the greatest lie, he says, is that human wisdom will solve it all. Think of it this way. The teacher or preacher in some translations, he says he gives himself or gave himself wholly over to the acquisition of knowledge. Right Now, that's a universal theme, right? I mean, you can think back of the ancients and consider Plato and others, Socrates, Aristotle, right? But even consider today, you know, I mentioned earlier, we're taking our daughter up to, to college this week, but how many students have, have found themselves in insurmountable uh, student debt because they've been told that, that the pursuit of education is what they needed most? <laughs> and so they leave school with a degree, but they're crushed financially, right? Anyway, our teacher says this is a lousy job, right? Not only because it doesn't satisfy, but you can't find the answers you seek. Furthermore, he goes on to say, if God is in control, why am I messing about with these earthly pursuits? Why can't I just trust God? Why can't I leave well enough alone and put my faith in God and the pursuit of him more than anything else? Have you ever asked yourself that, right? 
Have you ever sometimes just stopped short and asked yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing, right? I'm getting nowhere, right? Or why am I giving myself over to so much exertion and energy uh, and emotional expense and, and getting nothing? Well, that's the challenge that the writer puts before us, a challenge that he wants to address in the first and second chapters of the text. He says, why is it so easy? We, might, we would say it like this as Christians. Why is it so easy to focus pursuing anything and everything other than Jesus, right? Think about how many lessons, uh, sermons, and, and Bible studies you've been through that, that teach you about how to create time in the Word and how to give yourself margin to spend time with Jesus and, and all about spiritual practices. And I mean, there are... Uh, copious amounts, never-ending lessons, if you will, where we try to attempt to teach and encourage one another about how to find margin and time for Christ. That's because people struggle with it, right? I think, too, it's one of the, um, well, anyway, but he's got a point, right? I mean, wisdom and knowledge are important things to have. Don't get me wrong, right? If you go to see the cardiologist, you want her to, to be smart, right? You want her to be able to, to tell you what's wrong, right? You want the, 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 the person who, you know, puts your medicine together to know what they're doing. Education is good and it's valuable and it's something, but his point is uh, when it becomes our reason for existence, that's when things begin to break down. Things begin to break down when we leave God out of it. Things begin to break down when we leave Jesus out of what we're doing. So the Apostle Paul picks up this on 1 Corinthians 3.19. Let's read this together. He says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Think about that verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Again, not that knowledge or wisdom is bad, but human knowledge and wisdom is limited and in no way compares to the knowledge and wisdom of God himself. That's why the teacher refers to it as chasing the wind, right? You can never catch it, but if you do catch it, what do you have? Nothing, right? So humans pursuing wisdom as the ultimate end find nothing at the end, he says, because, well, there's nothing. All right, that's his take on wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom above all else. What he moves to next is wealth, okay, wealth, chapter 2. Mike's going to put that up on the screen, verses 22 through 26. The writer says this, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. <laughs> he says, I'll no longer live by the myth that hard work and well-earned wealth validate one's life. 
How many of you know someone who's a workaholic, right? Who all they do is work and they've never taken any time to enjoy, right, life. Not simply the, the fruits of their labor in terms of the money, but their loved ones, right? Or the gifts that God has to offer them in the world today. But he says, I will no longer live by the myth that hard work and well-earned wealth validate one's life, right? Otherwise, obsession with fulfillment through work and, and accomplishments ultimately leads to that crisis point in one person's life where they ask, why did I do this? Why did I spend so much time working, right? Did I really live for anything? I mean, this is this idea that our human identity is wrapped up in our profession, right? Um, that we receive our validation from our career accomplishments or achievements, our, our uh, degrees, our awards, those kinds of things, right? Um, you know, I, we've mentioned this before, but I, I think it's always ever, uh, invariably one of the questions that's asked right off the bat is what do you do, right, for a living, right? Because that's what happens. We measure people by that, what they do or how they define themselves by their occupation, um, we're shallow, we're unable to, uh, to, to, to think beyond that as a way of defining someone. It would be sort of like meeting a physician versus meeting someone who is um, um, like uh, waste management, right? I can't say garbage collector anymore. Uh, I got to say waste management. Yet we know that the person who works in waste management is equally as important, if not more so, than the doctor, right? Because if the waste isn't picked up, the doctor's overwhelmed. Right? Um, so anyway, um, but you see, we still continue to, to categorize and uh, define uh, people. But he says this, he says it's all nullified by death, right? I mean, there's that old joke, it's overused. You've never seen a hearse, a U-Haul following a hearse, right? Now, with all the funerals I've done, I've seen some people put some interesting things in the caskets, right? Right? Uh, but nonetheless, he's, you can't take it with you, right? Uh, everything is nullified by death. So he says, you're a great businessman, you're a rock star, you're a celebrity, you're a famous athlete, a decorated soldier, a sought-after uh, uh, sought educator. So what? Are you still who you were when this pursuit began? Or have you changed into something less desirable as a person as you put wisdom and wealth before all other things? He asks, have you forgotten God in all of this? And so perhaps as you think about it, maybe there's someone in your life or perhaps makes you think of a celebrity or, or some other type of person who pursued anything at any means and in the end got what they wanted, but then crashed and burned. I used an uh, illustration earlier, Lance Armstrong, right? Remember Lance Armstrong? Who could forget? Seven-time winner of the Tour de France, right? But yet, what did he do to win those titles? He cheated, right? And lost it all. Lost it all. Lost it all. So here's what's going on in the text. The problem is life in a fallen and broken world, all right? Not just the, the world that we see around us, right? I mean, again, our nation rocked by uh, two um, mass shootings yesterday, right? You know, in El Paso and then in Dayton, Ohio. I mean, clearly, it's evident around us, and there are other evidences to that point. And if we view these things, though, 
the writer says, without reference to God, without reference to his power, without reference to his, his mercy and his provisions, uh, the world in which we find ourselves is a chaos without meaning. All right, that's his thesis. Wisdom and pleasure, he says, neither can, neither can help us live contentedly. It might help for a little bit, right? Might feel good. But he says, over both hangs the shadow of death. And so he says... I'm not presenting to you God as capricious, but I want to relate to you this idea of the biblical, uh, this biblical idea of the grace of God in your life, uh, that to believe that one's life is ruled by impersonal fate, he says that's intolerable. He says that's no way to live. But to believe that, that life is controlled by a personal God is and should be a great comfort to you and to me as the people of God. In fact, in our first service where we read the additional gospel lesson, it comes from Luke chapter 12. And the gospel lesson today is the companion text to this from Ecclesiastes, which is the story of the rich guy who says, what am I going to do with all my wealth? I'm just going to build bigger barns and store up even more wealth. And Jesus calls him a fool, right? Because that's just the focus of his life. Um, but also in that same section of Luke chapter 12 is a whole section called Fear Not, where Jesus takes a lengthy amount of time to outline how God provides for our needs uh, and why we as the people of God should not see life as meaningless as those who do. And so the writer lays the foundation for commending this God-centered life by critiquing life without God, whether it's theoretical that God doesn't exist or it's more pragmatic. I don't care about God, right? So he says this, to any who maintain a viewpoint other than faith in God, he says, do you realize what follows from that view of life? He says, folly, futility, it's a vacuum. The pursuit of things which do not satisfy. He goes, I've just spent two chapters outlining my case before you, right? He says, the pessimist looks at the world and life and looks at it in distrust and cynicism. Why? Not only because of the lack of belief in the world, but also a lack of belief in God. And the goal of the teacher is to get people to embrace a life which is derived from God himself. To not only see him involved in your life, but as the reason you're here, that he's the initiator not only of you being welcomed into the world, but the initiator of this relationship that he has with you. Creating you. Not to laugh at you as you stumble through life and do the best you can on a day-to-day -day basis, but to contend for you in the holiest of senses for your good and his glory. So the teacher says, and I think we can, this is where we can, as we wrap Christ into it. Even in Christ, you and I, even in Christ, you and I still recognize all is vanity um, and the futility of a life of nothing more than the things of this world. He says, if faith is introduced into this worldview, we can, be concur we can be encouraged and we can have what he says is a new perspective. And that's what gets us to chapter 3. He 
He says that because faith is meant to address our cynicism. Faith is meant to address our despondency. Factors such as the generosity of God, the control in our li- his control in our lives, his provision, uh, his grace and mercy and forgiveness and power, all these things uh, are to change our outlook, to change our focus in our life. Second uh, Corinthians, the Apostle Paul picking up on this new perspective says this, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. So in that last verse in 18, you can kind of pick up this idea of what is seen is temporary, right? Futile, vain, meaningless. But what is unseen is eternal. Now, What's interesting about this, though, is I think it it works this way, that the new perspective that you get in Christ Jesus doesn't necessarily cancel out the old. We still live in a fallen world, right? We still feel the effects of it. But the believer lives in what's called overlap. (laughs) The believer lives in overlap, recognizing that, yes, I still live in a fallen and broken world, but my life is also in Christ. And because my life is in Christ, I am assured of the promises of God in Christ for me here and now. And so that new perspective then is supposed to revolutionize our outlook and revolutionize how we approach wisdom and revolutionize how we approach wealth, right? So how we approach our obligations, how we approach our free time, how we approach our relationships, our finances, our health, this new perspective not only causes us to think differently, but also to behave differently towards life itself. And Paul picks up on this. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know what? That your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That your life in the Lord is not meaningless. What a contrast to the writer of Ecclesiastes. Remember, what did he say? Everything, right, is vain, vanity. Everything is meaningless. And Paul says, no, once your life is in Christ, that's not true. That's not true. It's not vain and it's not meaningless. So that the forgiveness he gives to us in Christ is not in vain. It's not meaningless. That the forgiveness we extend to one another, not in vain or meaningless, right? That his creation is not in vain or meaningless. That, he get, that the gifts he gives to you and to me are not in vain or meaningless. That as you live out your daily life in Christ. In Christ, in acts of mercy and and generosity, as Christians go to work and labor under the sun, that this new perspective of being in Christ and for Christ gives you and me reason to live. It gives you and me reason to labor. It gives you and me reason to love. A much greater reason, right? A much greater reason than the so-called wisdom, right, of the world or that costly wealth it offers. In Jesus' name, amen.